I am really sorry that I lost that I totally lost it <laughs> while you were reading. No problem, Todd. We got through. All right. Uh, before we go any further, I, I think I'm still oh, blowing my nose. I thought you were done. I thought you were done. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. How are you, Joseph? I am good. How are you doing? I am really, really tired. <laughs> really tired. I woke up this morning and I just sort of like popped up uh, out of bed when my alarm went off and I thought, I feel great. And then, and then like five minutes later, I thought, I feel terrible. <laughs> And then uh, my wife said, how'd you sleep last night? And I said, I'm not really sure. I remember having a lot of weird, weird dreams. And she goes, yeah, you weren't restful like the whole night. You were just tossing and turning. And I was like, yeah, that's about how I feel. Right, and I've had like three different people tell me today, you look terrible. Which is always, yeah, whenever anyone says you look tired, just go ahead and pencil in terrible where they said tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said restful. What is restful and restless? What a... Uh... What's the exact usage of those? Well, restful would be meaning that I'm like when you close your eyes and you're just still right. and you look like a, like a little baby, you know, like when you peek in on your kids and they're just like restful, restless is when you're like tossing and turning, which is what I did apparently the whole entire night last night because I dreamed that I was on the U S uh, national soccer team and I was the only one that was trying and I was very, <laughs> very frustrating. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It was really frustrating. It was yelling at Clint Dempsey the whole time. Come on, Clint. (laughs) (sighs) Who among us has not had that dream? (laughs) Uh, uh, One other. (laughs) Before we uh, carry on with this uh, episode, I wanted to say a thank you to uh, our listeners who have said to us, either in person or through various social media means, that they started to watch Grand Hotel. Oh, yeah. That just makes me happy. That's that's kind of feedback. <laughs> I, I've got a listener who I see personally, and he is he and his wife are through the first season. <laughs> and he's giving me comments, but not spoilers. He's like, are, are you really... Are you really far into it? Like, how far are you? I'm like, not as far as you. Not nearly as far as you. And then, uh, I guess, along the same lines, our producer Andrew has a little bit of uh, uh, revelation for us. I watched Big Trouble in Little China... Last week. After we recorded After the recording, yeah. And how was that? Uh, it was it was special. Something special. <laughs> um, and it really I is. I think I like the delivery that Joe and Todd gave a little better than some of the deliveries. You like our line readings? In, yeah, in the, in the movie. Uh, you just put a little more zest into it at the right places that if they knew it was going to be a cult classic, I feel like they would have paste the lines a If only they'd known they were destined for immortality with this film. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, this week, we're going to be talking about Haviland Tough from the novel Tough Voyaging by George R.R. R. Martin. This novel collects several previously published short stories and adds uh, several new ones as well. The earlier stories were published in 1976, 78, and 81, and this collected novel with the four new stories was published in 1985. And this episode is brought to you by our patron, Tommy. So thank you, listener Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Both uh, helping us out and suggesting this book, which was uh, a really entertaining read. 
We just uh, remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook, download, and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player, if you still have it from 1999. All right, a little bit of trivia trivia about uh, Havlin' Tough in the novel Tough Waging. This kind of novel where an author will... Um, revise and put together several previously published short stories into one is tends to be called a fix-up novel and uh the author george R. R. martin is most famous for his very popular song of fire and ice series which has been adapted as an hbo series called game of thrones perhaps you have heard of it <laughs> um and these stories fit into a narrative universe with several of his other books not the song of fire and ice but some of his other ones they all are part of a grand narrative universe, I guess. Um, though I don't think there's really any mention of characters or events from those others. These, these just happen to fit into that world that he was envisioning. And also this was just something as I was reading, I caught, um, quite a few references to X-Men comic books and I didn't catch any of them. <laughs> so, uh, the one that stood out the most was there's it. Well, in the book it's involves alien or space travel and alien creatures and other things, but it makes mention of an alien creature that is called an Aurora from the planet Claremont. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> Aurora is a storm and the most popular writer to have ever written her and, and really popularized the version of, of the superhero storm that we know today was Chris Claremont. Who had, see that would have been writing, uh, X, uh, X-Men and storm adventures for at least four years. Uh, I think we are, I think that was in the one from 81. So that would be about six years. He was writing those characters. So cool. All right. So I thought, Todd, I thought it was going to be like some obscure thing, but that's like the most blatant X-Men reference. That you There's also the other one I meant to look up. Uh, I mean, it could have been like Logan from the planet Wolverine or something like that. <laughs> Maybe have been more obvious, but <laughs> yeah, there is also uh, one of the, a, a planet that's called Namor. That's a water-based planet. And yes. in Marvel superhero comics, Namor is their kind of Prince of Atlantis character. So. Yes, I did. I did pick up on that one. Yeah. All right. Uh, so Todd, uh, were you aware of this book at all before listener Tommy suggested it to us? Not at all. Nor was I. <laughs> this is our second uh, episode in a row where we're both being introduced to a work by our <laughs> listeners' suggestions. And if uh, any listener out there would like to buy a topic for us that maybe we've never heard of, where can they do that, Todd? They can go to p- patreon.com slash protagonist. And we just actually, uh, Patreon just updated their... Um, their site so we have a new fancy looking uh, website if anybody wants to check it out that's patreon.com slash protagonist you can become a, a a patron of our website and you can also get access to our star wars uh quick cast which actually has gotten some nice reviews from people who have listened to it so it's worth your time we say quick cast but it's i mean it's 40 minutes of us talking about the new star wars movie so it might be worth a uh, dollar a month Yep, and a patron at any level gets access to that and any future quick casts that we yep. do. All right, well, for any listeners who, like us, are completely unfamiliar with this work, do you have a short version of uh, what this book is about? This book is about a man named Haviland Tuft. Tough? Tough? And uh, he comes upon a giant, giant, giant ship that has the ability to clone essentially any creature ever to have existed in the universe. (laughs) And uh, it gives him pretty much 
infinite power <laughs> or close to infinite power. And he goes around uh, gallivanting around the universe, uh, interacting with planets and their problems. So if that sounds interesting, I would recommend that you go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon and you can go order yourself a copy of this collection. I definitely enjoyed reading through it. Uh, if you go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon, any purchase that you make, we get a small percentage of the money you're spending and it doesn't cost you any extra. It just takes a little bit out of Amazon's pocket and drops it into ours so we can keep the lights on here at Protagonist Central. And really in the balance of power... <laughs> it, Amazon's it, winning. <laughs> yeah. It's not... I mean, we're just evening out the universe a little bit. Yeah. You ready for the synopsis, Todd? I am ready. Hit me with your best shot. Listeners, we're not actually going to be summarizing the entirety of Tough Voyaging. It's seven kind of discrete short stories slash novella-length stories um, that are all self-contained. We're going to be summarizing four of them, and I'll give a maybe a one-sentence summary of what happens in the others as we go through. But the first one is called... Plague Star. And in this story, a group of individuals are discussing the need to hire a transport to take them to a destination that will make them wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. Celis Wan is a scholar who believes through her studies she has found the location of an ancient ship that has vast lost technologies that have never been recreated since the fall of a much earlier empire. Along with her are Jeffrey Lyon, a scholar of military history, Anitas, a half-human, half-robot cybertech, and Kaj Nevis, the de facto leader of this group. They hire Rika Donstar as a bodyguard to make sure that there's no double crossing by anyone. <laughs> and then they See also... See how that turns out for them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, good plan. Good plan. They also hire Haviland Tuff, a trader with a ship called the Cornucopia of Excellent Goods at Low Prices. I love that. I love that. <laughs> like, when I'm reading along a book and I come across the name of a ship that's called the Cornucopia of Excellent Goods at Low Prices, I think, okay, I think I'm going to like this book. Yeah, I, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was totally in at that point. Yeah, there's a, a prologue that I've kind of skipped. That I was not in on the prologue. It wasn't doing anything for me. No. I was kind of like, oh, this this could be a long book. And then I got to the basically the, the name of the ship. And I was like, this will be good. Yeah. Uh, Tough, along with his beloved cats, flies this group of humans to their specified coordinates. And there is indeed a massive, massive spaceship called the Ark at that location. Now, when, you say, when you say a massive spaceship, how big is the spaceship? I believe it is 30 kilometers long. Is that accurate? Yes. yes. Is that the, the number that gets tossed yeah, out a lot? it's 30 kilometers long and multiple, multiple, multiple uh, levels. Yes. The Ark was a spaceship designed for bio-warfare with vast cloning tanks and cell libraries from all over the galaxy. A message from the Ark warns them that they will be attacked unless they depart, and Jeffrey Lyon tries to find an ancient military code that will let them pass through the Ark's defenses. Unfortunately, he cannot find it. <laughs> It's not a crystal and it's missing. And the cornucopia of excellent goods at low prices is fired upon and damaged. Tuff proposes a plan where he will travel to the Ark in an alien battle suit, hopefully too small to be detected as a threat, and then board the Ark and disable its defenses, at which point the cornucopia of excellent goods at low prices will be able to uh, dock with the Ark. And then the first betrayal happens. Uh, Nevis, Anitas, and Rika Donstar take the battlesuit at gunpoint, as well as two pressure suits. And they leave Tuff and, uh, let's see, Celise, Juan, and Jeffrey Lyon behind on the cornucopia of excellent goods at low prices to die. They have no plans to bring them aboard the Ark. I think it's important at this point uh, that we note that Rika actually approached Tuff earlier. To double-cross everyone. And she said, hey, just so you know, 
I'm thinking about double crossing everybody, and he's and he is shocked at her willingness to be de- 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 deceitful. He's, deceptive. He says, we have a contract. <laughs> he's a very, very honest, honorable guy. Though, he's also giant and white and hairless. Though at the same time, it should be noted that uh, while he is um, trying to figure out how to board the Ark and he comes up with his plan, he kind of stalls out until they offer to give him a larger portion of the reward. <laughs> Because uh, him crossing space and boarding the Ark was not part of the original contract. Right. So he's honest, but he's not above a little bit of haggling. Yes. Or okay. a lot of haggling, which is basically so, this whole book. So now <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that. So now Nevis in a massive alien exoskeleton suit and uh, Anitas and Rika in pressure suits, they board the Ark. But Nevis goes a little bit insane with power, and he really, really likes his new battle suit a bit too much. Nevis is scared to... Or no, I'm sorry. Anitas is scared to remove his pressure suit, which would allow his robotic half to connect connect with the Ark's computers because it would expose his biological half to any bioweapons that might be floating through the Ark's atmosphere. Nevis then rips Anitas' suit off <laughs> and injures him in the process, but forces him to connect to the Ark's computer. Seeing this display, Rika just runs away <laughs> as soon as she can <laughs> and begins exploring the ship on her own on the cornucopia of excellent goods at low prices. Tuff realizes one of his cats uh, may have batted a data crystal from Jeffrey Lyons collection under a console and he gets down on his hands and knees and he finds it. And they now have the military code that will allow the Ark to recognize them as an ally though damaged their ship is able to make it to the landing bay of the Ark and there Tuff dons one last pressure suit on his ship to go search the various ancient ships that are scattered around the land deck to look for additional pressure suits to protect Juan and Lion. After some time, he finds two functioning suits, but upon returning, he finds one of his cats, Mushroom, outside of his ship. After getting Juan and Lion their suits, he asks why his cat was outside his ship, and Juan says she threw it out of the airlock to see if it would live. <laughs> Tough is a bit upset about this. Uh, Lion is leading them to the armory in hopes of finding weapons to deal with Nevis's power suit when Mushroom begins to die from an unknown plague. Out of mercy, Tough kills his cat but he stops following Juan and Lion and starts wandering the ship on his own. Anitas, knowing his biological half is dying from microorganisms acting as defenses for the Ark, decides to release macroorganisms to get his revenge on Nevis. Rika Dawnstar has found her way to the control room of the ship and sees the computer announce the release of several macroorganisms and stops it after only a few have been released. But she sits back to watch everyone else die, at which point she will claim the Ark for herself. Tuff stumbles upon a cloning room, and looking down at the corpse of his cat, he has an idea. Anyone want to guess what his idea is? <laughs> uh, he becomes so engrossed with learning the techniques of cloning that he fails to notice a giant cloning vat release a Tyrannosaurus Rex into the room. <laughs> Uh, we've got dinosaurs on a spaceship, people. Meanwhile, Lion has armed himself up with every weapon that he can possibly carry, and he is off to hunt Nevis, and he's really excited about this. Like, this is, he's a military scholar, and this is, you know, being in the action is kind of fulfilling a lifelong dream of his. Uh, but Juan decides that she is tired and just wants to sit down in the armory and wait. Juan is soon killed by an alien creature called a Hellcat. Lion sets a trap for Nevis, leaving a plasma cannon with a size and motion sensor set set to go off. But while he is trying to lure Nevis to the trap, Lion is killed by an alien bat creature thing. (laughs) Nevis is then killed by a creature called a walking web. Imagine thousands of razor-sharp web-like spindles that hug you. tightly. Tuff uh, has found a space that is too small for the T-Rex to get to him, and he waited it out. 
while talking it down and yelling at it. Uh, when the dinosaur left, he finished cloning his cat and named the new cat Chaos. Rika Donstar flushes all the microorganisms out of the Ark and takes an object from the control room and then goes to find Tuff. When she finds him, the T-Rex comes up behind her, but she puts a crown-like device on her head, which gives her psionic control of all the creatures that have been cloned on the Ark. She climbs upon the T-Rex's back and rides it to chase down Tuff, but you remember that plasma cannon that Lion had set up? It takes out the T-Rex and Rika, leaving Tuff alone as the only survivor on the Ark, which he now claims as his own ship. End of story number one. Story number two in Tough Voyaging is called Loaves and Fishes. Tough takes the Ark to a planet called Suathlam for repairs. The planet is extremely overpopulated, and it must import most of its resources, but it has some of the most advanced technology in the entire galaxy. The government wants to take control of the Ark for its biological resources, hoping to be able to clone enough food for their massive population. Uh, the most popular religion on this planet believes that it is a sin to restrict birth in any way, as constant struggle, adaptation, and evolution will lead to godhood. The portmaster of the uh, the space portion of this government is named Taliboon, and she does not want to steal Tuff's ship outright, even though some people on the planet uh, side of the government do want to do that. She offers him large sums of money to buy it, but when he refuses, she kidnaps one of his cats <laughs> and makes a deal with him. If Tuff can devise a solution to the world's food crisis using the cloning vats, uh, while the ship is still being repaired, she will return his cat to him, and he will only owe them 10 million credits for the cost of repairs, and that those credits can be repaid over the next 10 years. This is a really, really big ship, people, and it needs a lot of repairs for how long it's been floating out in space. Well, right? and so. he also has to kind of, like, uh, fit it so that he can run the whole ship by himself. Because it was, it was originally uh, made for a crew of 200 plus, yeah. and he wants to run everything himself. So they are, like, also reprogramming things. If he cannot solve the food crisis, the government gets to claim the Ark. Tuff uh, agrees, and he's able to provide several alien plant and animal life that should provide food for all the people on Suathlam. The government, though, is now really extra enticed by the power of the Ark, and they plan to steal it. But Tali Moon is disgusted at this betrayal by her people, and she helps Tuff to escape. She is worried about the corruptive influence that even the idea of the power of the ship has had on her government. She hopes Tuff is able to resist the corruptive influence of the near-absolute power of the seed ship. That's what they call the Ark over and over throughout the novel, is the seed ship. All right, then there is a short story called... Second Helpings. Guardians. Well, Guardi Guardians oh. is first. And that is one in which Tuff goes to a planet and helps with some sea monster problems that they're having. Uh, but we're going to skip that one, and we're going to go over to Second Helpings. After five years, Tuff re returns to Suathlam to pay off half of his debt. He discovers he's a pop culture icon and a hero on the planet. Uh, the introduction of new animal and plant life that staved off famine is called Tuff's Flowering, and there was a popular film called Tuff and Moon made to dramatize his earlier visit to the planet. <laughs> and uh, he's pretty disgusted by this film because it shows him and Moon as like a romantic couple, of <laughs> and him as kind of a, a swashbuckling hero. Uh, however, the planet is actually now, only five years later, closer to famine and societal collapse than it was when he first visited, though the general population does not know it yet. The government is well aware of this, though. Filled with joy and optimism, uh, optimism at Tuff's flowering, there was actually a an uptick in the birth rate on the planet. 
And with such a massive population, any uptick is devastating for projections as to how much food uh, they need. Tuff once more devises even more fruitful plants and animals to provide for the planet. He says he's gained some skills in the five years of his uh, genetic engineering, and he, he thinks he can do even better than he did the first time around. But he also gives a speech in which he declares that only the immediate adoption of massive birth control will save the planet, uh, because most of the planet subscribes to the religion which views birth control as a sin. This causes rioting and outrage, and Tali Moon must again save Tuff in order for him to be able to leave the system. Uh, next comes a story called A Beast for Norn, which is kind of a uh, story about Tuff ending gladiatorial uh, beast fighting, cockfighting kind of situation on the planet. And then a story called Call Him Moses, in, in which uh, there's a man named Moses who kind of recreates several uh, plagues and trying to manipulate people's religious fears. And Tuff goes to put a stop to that. And then the final story is called Manna from Heaven. Tuff returns for a third time to pay off his final debt. Now Suathlam is almost at war with six neighboring star systems that have all allied against Suathlam because they fear the planet will begin colonizing other nearby systems to deal with their own overpopulation. This isn't just, you know, speculative fear. This actually happened about a generation ago, I think it was. And they're worried it's going to happen again, that Suathlam will start trying to reach out and export their their overpopulation. Tali Moon is actually now in charge of the entire government, both the spaceport and the Earth or the planet side. And she, Tuff, and representatives from the six nearby systems arrange a meeting to see if Tuff can propose a solution that everyone will agree to. Tuff presents a plant, a plant that he calls mana, which is mildly addicting. It's a narcotic, but it also provides all necessary nutrition and it will grow anywhere and everywhere on Suathlam, thus finally causing a, an end to their hunger problem. The other six systems, uh, after some threats <laughs> from Tuff, agree to a year long armistice to see if this will really curb any need for expansion from, uh, the people of Suathlam. In the end, though, Tuff reveals to Tali Moon that the mana will not only feed her people, it will be a long-term solution for her planet because it has been engineered to inhibit male libido and also cause <laughs> widespread sterilization in women. He has not yet released the mana on Suathlam and leaves that decision to Tali Moon. She calls him a monster and says he has been corrupted by the power he wields and she doesn't want to have to make such a decision. Tuff says not making a decision remains a decision in this instance and will uh, lead to her planet's entire collapse. And it is implied, though not explicitly stated, that in the end, she released the mana over her planet. The end. Does that mean that everyone there is the last generation? It said it would not be uh, universal <laughs> sterilization, but widespread sterilization. Okay. But you would think if this becomes the main food source and it's causing constant widespread sterilization, yeah, eventually so, there would be a final no, generation. Wait, wait, a, a wait, wait, very wait. rapid decrease and then perhaps... <laughs> A few generations down. Yeah. Well, extinctions. So what he says is that there will be a a specific percentage of the population that will be immune to this. So right, a bunch of people, yeah. like the the population, will decrease rapidly. But then but those, then who those that people are will, would pass will on that breed with each other, and their offspring will also be immune. And so there will or be at least a percentage will, yeah. and it'll it'll perpetuate a, yeah. a new cycle of. Yes. Growth. Yeah. But more okay. a more sustainable rate of growth. Mm -hmm. This this stuff sounds like really cool. It is really cool. I think it's uh, really, like, really like interesting. Really fascinating. Like I really want to borrow this book. Yeah. Yeah. Well you certainly can borrow it from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and it introduces a lot of really complex ideas, but it mm-hmm. doesn't say that there's easy, simple solutions <laughs> to it. Yeah. To, to any of these, um, like that that finale with Tough. Like, you know, you've kind of come to view him as a good guy, but that's kind of a dark turn. Like forced sterilization, never really a good thing. <laughs> But um, considering the situation that the planet's in, the only alternative is mass warfare, famine, and this, probably the destruction of that whole race. Yeah. So, and that's and that's why in the end, Tali Moon says, Ugh. "So the, the I'll read the final line here. It uh, the book ends. So Tali Moon is receiving a call from uh, the planet, trying to make sure everything's gone well with the negotiations, and." Um, she, she answers it and they say, what's wrong? And she's like, wrong. Nothing's wrong. And they say, well, um, you're crying. <laughs> and she says, these are, these, she says, these are tears of joy. Mana. That's what he calls it. Mana from heaven. She laughed food from the stars. Tufts a genius. Sometimes, sometimes they even think he might be, and there's a long pause. And the other guy says, what? And she says, a God. And she touched the button, a button and the screen went dark. And then the last line of the book is her name was Tali moon, but in the stories they call her all sorts of things. Yeah. That was a tough summary to write. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, but I, I think you did a good job. Your summary of a 440-page novel is about as long as my summary of a 40-minute a uh, TV <laughs> episode. <laughs> I, I, I trimmed a lot. So, so but you got, you, the, if, you got the main points. I, if, I really do good. like the other – I really do like the other stories. And I was um, – so the first thing that I was going to say about this – uh, so point number one, I really enjoyed this book. Um, and then when you, you started reading this before I did and you said, well, it's just a collection of short stories. So we should probably just do the first two and be done with it. And I read the first two and I thought, my goodness, this is really good. I want to read the whole thing before we talk about it. Um, I get that it's a collection of short stories, but it didn't feel disjointed in any way. It felt like a, a book. And, um, I, I would say it's as much like an episodic novel as it is a collection of short stories. Yeah. And there's natural breaks. I mean, I left five year gaps to those gaps, yeah. uh, where these other self-contained stories where he goes and visits the planet. Um, this is where he's earning all the money that he has to pay back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, um, the people who retrofitted his ship. So he goes to a planet, uh, that's having a, tr- a problem and negotiates his fee that everyone always says is overpriced. And he acts offended by this and just waits them out <laughs> until they agree to his price. Well, he uh, picks up along the way, he picks up a psychic cat yes, that he- they called Dax and Dax can uh, read other people's minds and then feed what the other people are thinking to tough. So he always knows when he's negotiating, he always knows what somebody's like, what their ceiling is. And, and so, he, he'll say that number. And then he just sits there while they counter offer like four or five times. And then he just sits quietly. And then they always, they always end up, yeah. uh, uh, going along with what he had initially proposed because he knew that that was what they were doing because he has a psychic cat. Now in, in my plot summary, I didn't give much physical descriptions of any of the characters. I think we should probably give the listeners, uh, our vision and you know what George R. R. Martin wrote for who or or what Tuff looks like. So Tuff is very tall. Like I, I think he would be. I mean, he's like a giant sized human. They, they made it like seven feet tall. I think was mentioned yeah. at least once. Yeah, he's seven feet tall and he's heavy. He's he's got a big fat pot belly. He, he's obese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he's completely bald. 
Totally, completely hairless. Completely hairless. And he wears, um, once he gets the arc, <laughs> he finds what sounds like a baseball cap. Yes. <laughs> that has, uh, uh, was it, uh, ecological engineering on it? <laughs> like EE or something like that? It's a, it's a fade, it's a symbol. So did, was okay. your book, um, was your book, uh, illustrated? It had a few, um, uh, like ink sketches. Yeah, but some of those you see him with his with his yeah, baseball cap. Yeah, it's like a baseball on. hat. <laughs> yeah, he's got a baseball cap, and and then he also has these like he wears these big uh, like overcoats that have giant shoulder pads and very sort of seventies, eighties yeah. kind of like classic sci fi, you know, with pointy mm-hmm. big pointy shoulder pads. But he's also got this baseball cap on, and he is. Um so verbose <laughs> like if he can use a paragraph to share a thought he will <laughs> i love i love i think one of my most favorite uh parts is when he, so he comes back to suthlam and and they've made this movie about him and they're all they've all praised him because he did this amazing uh thing to save their planet and he realizes and they and and the the experts have realized that the the population has increased because of the changes that he made because people got excited and so the the planet is still doomed so despite all of his best efforts the planet's still doomed and uh so in his solution he says i have to talk to the population of suflam and it, he opens it by saying this i left the lights on today so that i can actually read out of my book but the candle's still burning don't worry he says, first, permit me to point out that I do not wear a mustache because the guy in the in the movie was like an Errol Flynn kind of like swashbuckling hero with a, with a mustache. First, he said, uh, permit me to point out that I do not wear a mustache. The statement <laughs> provoked general laughter. Nor have your esteemed portmaster. This is a uh, Tolly Moon because they had this sort of romantic love story going on between them in the movie nor have your esteemed portmaster and myself ever united in physical congress vid shows notwithstanding though i have no reason to doubt that she is a skillful practitioner of the erotic arts whose favors would be held in high esteem by any who joy that enjoy that sort of diversion <laughs> like that's but that's how he talks all the time yes i will the the sample that i found is from fairly early on where they first see the arc and someone says how big is that thing and his answer is uh, regarded at the angle at which my view screen is now displaying it, with the longest axis taken as length, the ship we are approaching would seem to be approximately some 30 standard kilometers long, approximately some 5 kilometers in width, approximately some 3 kilometers in height, but for the domed section of midships, which rises slightly higher, and the forward tower, which ascends approximately one additional kilometer above the deck from which it rises. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's his quick answer for approximately how big is the arc. Well, he is, he's, he's totally literal and he has a lot of, I mean, I would say autistic tendencies in that everything, he takes everything totally literally. So people say, that's unbelievable. He's like, well, why would you say that? Because it's obviously happening and therefore you should believe it. Or they'll say, I don't believe you. And and he says, why does everyone insist on my being a liar? And I'm always constantly attacked at every turn. Because he he flies this huge ship and he clones things and people think that it's unbelievable and he he interprets that as them saying that he's a liar or a charlatan or something, but uh, but he can't he just can't understand figures of speech or 
He takes, takes everything literally, and it's really funny. But yeah, he can't say anything <laughs> short. <laughs> um, and I think this book does a really good job of presenting, like I said, these big, complex ideas um, and does some really good world building and, you know, it still keeps like the alienness of the galaxy out there, uh-huh. but also makes it all pretty understandable. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was thinking this would be a really cool book uh, in like a, a biology class, like a college biology class. Okay. Can I, can I pause you there and share something with you? Yes, please do. So our listener, Tommy, who uh, is the patron and is the one that requested that we read this text he is a biology professor. <laughs> um, and let me just pull up something he said. He said one reason that he suggested this novel is because there are ecology themes, obviously, and I use those to teach about conservation and environmental issues at a university. But there are also themes related to power and whether Tuff becomes corrupted by the power of the Ark or not. So I think those are probably two of the main things that we will need to be addressing. But uh, I just thought it's interesting that you said this would be really interesting for that reason. And the yes. guy who had suggested it to us has used it for that very reason. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great because... Um... So for all of these, all of the solutions to the problems that Tuff encounters on these planets, he uses ecology. He uses the the relationship between all of these different uh, forms of life to either save in some situations or create havoc in other situations. But but he has to understand the way that everything connects with each other, which is I think what ecology is. As, yeah. as I understand it. Yeah, and there are times where people like say, well, can't you just do this? And who gives one of those very long-winded answers about what introducing, you know, that kind of creature in this setting, uh-huh. uh, you know, what the ripple effects for the entire uh, planet would be. Yeah, so that that was one thing that I really uh, enjoyed about this was getting um, this. I mean, there's obviously very little science in... <laughs> <laughs> in what actually happens, and yet the theory behind it, I think, is is really sound. So let's see. Just trying to decide where to go next. Well, I have one. I have a, a question, which is the tough, the tough that we see from the beginning of this novel on. He's super capable. He's really smart, and he's able to basically outsmart everyone all the time. But. When we meet Tuff at the very beginning of this, he seems to be like a down-on-his-luck merchant with this old ship, and the reason that they get him is because he's cheap, and I just... uh, And he's desperate. Yeah, and he's (laughs) desperate. He kind of feels like Han Solo with the, you know, the piece of junk Millennium Falcon. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So my question is, like, how are those two the same character? Because once he gets his hands on the Ark, he is totally unstoppable. And he even matches wits with all these villainous people and Rika Donstar, who is who is totally ruthless and cutthroat and smart. And I don't think it's been said, but Rika Donstar, great name for a character. Yes. And a great character. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but he beats them all really, like, quite soundly, and he's always in control of everything. And I think, how did this guy end up with a junky uh, cornucopia of excellent goods at fair prices or whatever, <laughs> whatever it's called. <laughs> and like, how does he, how is he this down on his luck guy when 
he just seems to be so in control of everything for the rest of the novel. I don't know. Am I, am I picking at uh, nits or is there something there? No, I think there's something there. I was going to talk about like the evolution from this first story on Sothlam to the end. And uh-huh. do you think he has become corrupted? Cause his methods actually do start changing, uh, you know, throughout. And he seems more willing to kind of overthrow <laughs> entire <laughs> civilizations for what he perceives to be the good. Yes. Uh, and, you know, he, his willingness to do that seems to increase. So is that a corruptive influence? But the biggest leap, I, I agree, is definitely from the down-on-his-luck trader that we meet in the very start of the first novel to, mm-hmm. I mean, he kind of lucks his way into being in charge of the Ark. Yeah. But still, there's a there's a big jump from there to what he does in the next short story. Well, I mean, you say he lucks his way into it. The whole, He didn't know about the trap, right? Yeah, he didn't know about the trap. He um, is only not eaten by the Tyrannosaurus Rex because he ducks under a desk, basically, that is bolted to the floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the Tyrannosaurus can't get its mouth in there. Um, and everyone else is... He, he doesn't take out anyone. Everyone else is taken out by the ship itself. Right. So Rika does uh, a lot of the work. She does all of the work, actually, except for Jeffrey Lyons setting up the one trap for... Uh, the man in the alien armor that ex- ends up taking out uh, the Tyrannosaurus uh-huh. Rex. Yeah. So, so he, he kind of stumbles into that. But from then on... Once he has the ship, then he's he's the man. Yeah. So that that the first part of this, I like that first story. I think it's really interesting. Um, and I said that for the most part, these stories all seem to, to form a cohesive whole. And I didn't have really any problem reading it as a novel. Not really as a collection of short stories, uh, but there is that the a big jump in his character from the the tough that we meet at the beginning of the first story to the tough that we see at the beginning of the second story. Uh, it's and the, the events it's of the, the first one story. place. Yeah, it's the one place in the in the in the novel where I think ah, I feel like it it kind of falls down a little bit. And the events of the first story don't really explain that change. Um, and whereas for a lot of the other ones, you say, well, he's traveling alone in the ship. He's studying everything. He's reading everything. Uh-huh. But he's gone straight from the end of the first story to Sothlam. And, um, I mean, a one man that's capable of, first of all, assimil- uh, assimilating all of this technology that's a thousand years old, uh, cr- manning a 30-kilometer ship by himself that used to have a crew of 200 and he just seems to handle it all really, really well. And we can't say that he has the force because a <laughs> <laughs> uh, different universe. So well, even, just, I guess there's still, um, I remember being a little like uh, scratching my head a little bit when he goes and he's immediately able to clone his cat. Like this uh-huh. is an ancient lost technology that no one has seen for a thousand years. And he just walks into the room and he's like, oh, I've got a dead body here. <laughs> Let me poke around for a few minutes. Well, but Rika also, I mean, they must have, it's, it's definitely the Mac of, uh, of spaceships because it's very intuitive. <laughs> uh, like Rika, she sits down in the captain's chair and she's like, all of a sudden an expert also and she she clears the air and she, she releases she only all of lets these monsters a certain number be released but she doesn't want too many released yeah she also doesn't she start uh, guiding them like the monsters towards the other people some uh-huh yeah and then she gets the thing so she can control them with her thoughts so yeah it's a very well designed ship that uh, apparently is it's just like a it's just like an iPad you just turn it on and you just you just know how to how to use it but um but anyway, that that jump, notwithstanding, 
uh, I love Tuffa's character. He just is so different from what I, I was expecting, like the, the swashbuckler with the mustache, when I thought, okay, it's called Tuffa. The way that in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably it's probably the story of some guy like gallivanting around the the uh, the galaxy in a ship, and um, it's George R. R. Martin, and so there's probably all kinds of like political stuff going on, and probably lots of you know, uh, Game of Thrones has a reputation for a certain level of. Sex and violence. Sex and violence. Thank you. I was just going to say salacious content. Salacious no, content. Thank you. Uh, and uh, that's what I was sort of expecting with this. And I got this <laughs> this great big giant seven foot hairless man who just loves cats. <laughs> and he, he's really smart. And and he just, I don't know, there's something about him that was, it caught me completely off guard. And I loved it. All right. Uh, before we move on, I wanted to mention something that I probably should have gone in trivia. Um, the planet Suathlam. It is uh, that name is an anagram of Malthus, who uh, there was a Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, uh, who um, wrote some stuff about overpopulation and um, <laughs> about uh, exceeding the. Uh, the resources that are available. And in fact, what he predicts has now come to be called a Malthusian catastrophe, which is when overpopulation exceeds resources, some event, either war or famine will restore the population to a level where it can sustain itself on the available resources. Interesting. So So, let's get back to your, uh, your second question, which was, uh, so, uh, Tali at some point early on, she, her government is trying to take, the ship away from tough. And he says, uh, he says no, and they're going to take it. And then she helps him escape. And he says, why are you helping me escape? And she says, because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And even the thought of this ship has already started to corrupt my people. And I have faith that you will not be corrupted by it because you seem like an incorruptible person. And then she sends him off into the universe uh, galaxy and says, well, I'll see you in five years, you know, to make up part the first half of your payment. Um, so, so then the question that you've asked is, does he eventually become corrupted by his ship? And I think it's a really interesting question. Um, the first, the first story where I started having thoughts about this is, is actually the gladiator one where yeah, the, an, the, where the animals are fighting. Yeah. The beasts, these beasts are fighting each other. So on this planet, just a real quick version, there's kind of 12 regions of the planet and each region kind of naturally has some different kinds of animals that are all aggressive and large. And there's an arena where, uh, there's like 12, all 12 houses will bring their best beasts to fight. And, you know, there's lots of betting and wagering and, uh, claim and, and social status comes when you have the animal that's winning the fights. And it is their entire culture and economy. <laughs> like the, these people have nothing if they don't have these fights. Yeah, they have so no the guy exports. from the very, <laughs> the guy from the very lowest, like poorest house, the beast master comes to tough and he says, I want to buy a monster. And Tuff says, okay. And it, just like when he accepted that, I thought, wait a second. <laughs> this is tough. Uh, it doesn't seem like he would be in the, in the mood to, 
you know, give a big monster to these guys so that that monster can kill other people. He's a vegetarian. Uh, he loves his cats. And he, and he really he doesn't hates anyone who mentions eating meat, eating meat <laughs> like he will not allow it. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't relish violence at all. Um, and so I was sort of taken by surprise. Uh, and then I thought, OK, he must be up to something. And what he is up to is the destruction of their and the entire way of life on this planet, because he ends up selling monsters to each of the, each of the houses in turn and increasing the price, in turn, for each. increasing the price each time. Uh, but along with, along with the monsters, he, he says, Oh, and I'll throw in just as an extra on this, I'll throw in some extra seeds of some plant or some little, little insects that these, that these things can then uh, hunt or something, and what he what he's doing is carefully destroying uh, the possibility for them to ever have these fights again. So all um, the all the animals that he gives them to fight with die out within a generation, like mm-hmm. or or one goes into like a two hundred year hibernation that he knows is <laughs> <love that>. coming. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't tell them these things when he, when they're buying the animals from them. Uh, but like one of one of the animals, the female only will go into heat if it's exposed to the pollen from a certain plant from its homeland, and he won't give them that plant, um. <laughs> so they can't breed anymore. And that sort of thing. So uh, within you know all those animals dying, uh, you know through the use of their games within months, basically there are none left, and. Uh, he's milked each house for basically all the money that they have. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually the other creatures that he's put onto this planet are going to roam. And he kind of implies that they'll be available as foodstuffs <laughs> for the people. Right. So that's it. <laughs> and then he leaves. So, which I thought was really interesting. And, and again, like the f- this first moment where I thought, huh, is this the same not not the same not the same jump as we saw the first time where I said oh, is this the same guy at the beginning of the second story as it is the first story because there's nothing to explain that change but now that we see the power that he has and this power that he has to change planets to save and to destroy as he wishes basically this is the first time that we see him do that yeah. in a way that has not been asked of him and then in the uh, the Moses one, there's a man who is uh, kind of imitating the biblical Moses uh, to say that the ruling party on this planet is not the right religious group and that his smaller sect should be the ones in charge. Uh, but when Tuff goes to throw him out, he full-on pretends to be God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sends a pillar of fire from a cloud. Pillar of fire from a cloud <laughs> and, and, and form a hologram. Uh, yeah, and he does say, I am God and I... And, and your plagues have been all cheap imitations of my real plagues, and I will send them on you. And then uh, at the end of the last one with Tali Moon, uh, when she calls him a monster, they have the conversation. Is he a monster or is he a god? And he kind of says, uh-huh. I'm a god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this, this in some ways ties back to our conversation about Hulk and a hero versus a villain. And uh, there's also this interesting uh, argument that she brings up where she says... Uh, you are a monster because you can only clone. You can't really create life. And the only, the only beings capable of, the only people here capable of creating life are, are us, just humans in our, like, uh, you know, what am I trying to say? Naturally production. Of, yeah, I can only think of Spanish words right now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like inside of, of humans, that's the power to create life. And this thing that you have here as big and powerful as it is, it's just a cheap, 
uh, copy of what we do, which is create life. And, and she's from a planet that celebrates the creation of life to the extent that they've, uh, increased their population and they're going to be destroyed. Um, so this is, this is this tight, like, uh, even the, the mana plant, they call it a Gordian knot. It looks like mm-hmm. a living Gordian knot. And, and it's kind of what Martin's created at the end of this novel. It's this like this tight knot that it's kind of hard to unravel and say who, who is right here, who is wrong here. Uh, but I thought that that, that, that definition that she gives of that you are a monster because you can only destroy and clone, but you really can't create life. Um, hey, Todd, what's a Gordian knot? What's a Gordian knot? Yeah. It's not with no end, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. it. Like it circles back in on itself and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> I do have, I, I have one other question. Yes. How come the Ark was abandoned and empty? Everyone on it had died and it was left derelict. So how did, how did in that like happen? In like a war. It's a, a it's war. like a garbage, like a scrap, a piece of scrap hanging. Was it the cause of the war? It was one no, of the main was, weapons of the war. There were fleets of these ships. But this is the only one that survived. this is the only one that survived. And the technology that was on it has been lost from the universe. There's one planet that they talk about. Is that it, what's the planet called? maybe has this whole technology, but it's completely walled itself off from the rest of civilization. Yeah. Like no one can enter that system. Huh. So Todd, you, uh, when you were talking about the God versus monster thing, and you said it reminded you of Planet Hulk, there's one other thing from this, a uh, theme from this that really reminded me of Planet Hulk as well in our discussion, which was the idea of struggle, uh, leading to advancement and leading to improvement. Um, and this gets really explicitly explored in the last short story when the other six, uh, star systems are all around and, and they kind of say, you know, we had a war a generation ago and now we're united against you. So you can't possibly beat us and tough says, uh, no guys. <laughs> Do you know, like, not only do the, uh, how do you want to say it? Lamis, is that how they say it? Uh-huh. Suthlamese have a much larger population than you. Their science has been working overdrive, uh, to keep their planet alive. Right. Um, like the famine should have struck many times in the last generation, but they keep are able, are, are constantly through just the hard work of their scientists are putting it off for another decade by finding another breakthrough and, you know, seeding, uh, you know, finding a new way to, to, find some new food sources and other things and their technology and their science and their population base are so far beyond all six of your planets that they would win in the war. (laughs) So you really don't want to fight them. Yeah. Which, um, their religion, which, uh, you know, prohibits them from having any birth control. One of the reasons though, is that through this constant growth and evolution and also the struggle that comes from that, they're going to attain godhood. Like they will constantly be improving, uh-huh. which is which in some ways is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in yeah. other ways it's like putting them on the brink of constant destruction. Yeah. It's the, uh, it, it's this, that's why I say it's like this knot that's tied up at the end. And it's the thing that's so maddening to Tolly is that she wants she wants to make no decision about this. What they want, what they want is to take the ark and to try to save their society by just using technology as they have always. And tough who seems to know because we've seen his capability as an ecological engineer uh, is telling her, no, this is the end of the road. Like there is no, there is no engineering your way out of this. This is the end. And she can't accept that. Uh, but it's also, I mean, tough makes a pretty compelling argument. And so she's stuck 
and he tells her, you can either make this decision to save your planet or you can make no decision, which in the end is a decision to destroy your planet. But, but there is like, there really is no, no decision. You either make one decision or through indecision, make your second decision. And, and eventually she realizes that he's right and she goes along with him. It's, uh, it's really interesting. It's a really, really interesting end to this story, I think. And it feels when Tuff says to Tali that you have to be the one to release the mana, it's like, oh, ow. Like, and she just rages at him. Like, she yells right. at him, like, I don't want to have to make that decision. And that's when he says, like, no, no decision, still a decision. <laughs> he says, I am merely pointing out that as much as I relish the proper... Oh, he's talking about um, cats. Because she's left... He left her two cats. And she let them breed. And now she has more cats than he does. Because he controls the breeding of his cats, and she didn't. And he says, it's just like it's just like the cats. He says, uh, as much as I relish the properties of the feline, I nonetheless take steps to control their breeding. I reach this decision after careful consideration and the weighing of all the alternatives. Ultimately, as you, you yourself will discover, there are but two fundamental options. You must either reconcile yourself to inhabiting the fertility, inhibiting the fertility of your cats entirely without their consent, I might add, or failing that, someday, most assuredly, you will find yourself about to cycle a bag full of newborn kittens out your airlock into the cold vacuum of space. Make no choice, and you have chosen. Failure to decide because you lack the right is itself a decision, First Counselor. In abstaining, you vote. Now, I do have to say, he is making a false analogy between the, you know, spaying and neutering of cats and the forced sterilization of a population. <laughs> Like, that is not a one-to-one correlation there. Not exactly, but I think given this context, it makes sense. Well, I think it makes sense, but there is still the the difference between, you know, animals and human beings. <laughs> that is pretty important. Well, yeah, yes. <laughs> but, well, I'm just saying, like, the... But this image, the image of of sending a bag full of newborn kittens out the airlock... I don't think it's so different from him telling her, listen, if you don't do this, your planet is destroyed and all of your civilization is gone. Everyone is dead. And the, and the, and the picture that she paints of what's going on on the planet is pretty horrifying. Yeah. She says on the lower levels, there's already cannibalism taking place in the lower levels of the cities. Cause the, the city, like the planet is basically like Coruscant in Star Wars. It's one it's massive all city. People. <laughs> it is all all city and all people. Um and in the first one particularly, I think they do a really interesting contrast, uh, which is again kind of getting at like who's the hero and who's the villain in this. Um where all of the Suthlamese people are um they ration their food to the lowest amount they can have, so they're all very skinny. Um they're all very um like uh you know, they're denying themselves a lot of comforts because of their belief in the sanctity of life. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, they, they live on a very overcrowded city and, and tough goes down and visits them and he can't handle it. Like he can't handle the overcrowded people. He can't uh-huh. handle anyone touching him. And so he returns to his 30 kilometer wide ship <laughs> that he has to himself alone. And like he and Tali Moon have a meal and she is literally disgusted at how much he eats. Like, and how decadent because his he can meals clone are. anything. He can yeah. create anything on his ship. So he's like, "Ah, oh, I want to eat this." And then he just makes it and eats it, and it's amazing. And she's sick about it. Yeah, like she can't even view it <laughs> because it's so antithetical 
to the life that she has lived and her people well, money, have lived. Money on their planet is calories. Yes. They, like all their imports, it's like how many calories will this cost? <laughs> right. So when she eats a thing that has X number of calories, she's calculating like this is this is as many calories as a person would eat in a week. And I'm eating it in one bite. And, and to have this obese giant of a man <laughs> wandering through their city, well, then, uh, you know, preaching to them the way that they should be living, which is so, uh, again, uh, you know, just the antithesis, antithesis of how they live in their, their day-to-day lives. Um, I think there's a really strong contrast that's being built there. And neither of them seem completely right. <laughs> yeah. I just, so. um, I missed, I, I, I think I've misrepresented this one part where... She's talking about, is he a monster or a god? She says, you can destroy, but you cannot create. That's what makes you a monster instead of a god. And he says, the creation of life in the cloning tanks is an everyday commonplace element of my profession. And then she says, no, you replicate life here, but you don't create it. It has to have existed already somewhere in time and space, and you have to have a cell sample, a fossil record, something, or you're helpless. Uh, oh, you have the power of creation, all right, the same power that I have, and that every man and woman down in the Undercity has procreation, tough. There's your awesome power. There's the only miracle there is, the one thing humans have that makes us like gods, and the very thing you propose to take away from 90, 99.9% of the people on Suthlam. You're no creator. You're no, no god. And uh, so anyway. Yeah. Good speech. <laughs> Again, 99.9%. That's a... A lot. <laughs> says, you don't have the right to make godlike yeah. decisions, and neither do I. And he says, if you don't, you are making a decision. Like, because this power exists, you you wield it. <laughs> like, yeah. Which I think is, is a really interesting concept. Well, and also, like we mentioned uh, with the Beast for Norn one, like, he destroyed their way of life. He destroyed their culture, their economy for what he viewed to be better. And in this instance, this is going to destroy their religion. <laughs> it's going to destroy uh-huh. their, their government. It's going to, like, it's going to completely remake this world. Uh, and it's kind of, uh, well, it's not kind of, it is arbitrary. Like he is the one making, I, as much as he's putting on a tally moon, like the, he's, you know, really forcing her into do it, taking this act. And uh, it seems like at the end of this, I mean, I guess it, one question would be maybe like a, a closing question is, um, do you think that after this, there is a relationship between Tuff and Tali, or do you think she's totally disgusted with him and he flies away in his ship? I think the bridges are burned. You think so? That's my, my thought. I mean, she's already been disgusted with him from the get go, but then kind of like also finding him charming. Well, there are clues. So you talked about how he hates, um, he hates to be touched by people. Uh, but she, he, it mentions, and it's not, um, I don't think it's an accident that her cat runs away and he gets the cat, he gets her cat and gives it back to her. And it says that when he gives her the cat back that they, they they brush each other, their arms or the hands brush each other. Um, so he's allowing her uh, proximity that he's never allowed to anyone else. And he allows her to share in the power of the Ark, which is something that he never has shared with anyone else. So I don't, I don't know. I think I don't know that I'm so convinced that she walks away from that. So there's the moment where there, she's getting the call from the planet, and Tuff is like, "You better take that." <laughs> and this is when 
she has to make the decision of is she going to send the mana or not. Mm-hmm. And it says, Talia Moon turned back to the console very slowly. It took her a day to make that turn, a week, a year, a lifetime. It took her 40 billion lifetimes, but when she had completed that turn, it had only taken an instant, and those lives were gone as if they had never been. I don't think she comes back from that. <laughs> okay. I think that turn is pretty significant for her from there on out. Like who she is. She's she's a changed person in turning to the console and having had to make that decision. Okay. I I I I don't know where I where I land at the end of this. There's a lot to think about. Yeah. <laughs> these are really these are really big thoughts, but I mean it's like it's 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 the president of the United States handing you the nuclear codes, and he, and you can't just like give them back, you know. I mean, they're they're that power once it's given to you, you can't say, well, I I don't want I don't want it, and and in some ways, tough has coerced her into wielding the power of the Ark. I don't I don't know I guess, but I, I mean it's, it's I was just it. seeing her as like a puppet as Tuff's puppet. Because she's been his equal through this whole thing. I don't know. Well, listeners, if you read it and you have any thoughts <laughs> on this, it really does. Uh, it leaves me kind of, yeah, thinking about all sorts of things about science, about religion, about, uh, you know, the societal progression. Like, there's a lot of big ideas in this that are really thought provoking. And I think it's um, sometimes when books or stories end with ambiguity, it's just frustrating. This one, to me, it's not frustrating. It's very thought provoking. Yeah, I I totally agree. I'm I'm completely satisfied with the ending of this, and the reason that I'm satisfied is because I will be thinking about this for a long time and and connecting things to this for a very very long time. Yeah, we've found uh, this is almost our 60th episode, and I think we found that there are certain ones that we've done that kind of become touchstones where we say, "Well, remember back when we talked about X, you know, character." Uh, I think this will be one <laughs> I, I agree. That, that we do some callbacks to. It's totally delightful. I'm just so glad that I got to read this. <laughs> um, it, I never would have saw it coming. I never would have picked it off a shelf to read it, uh, but it's one of the best books that I've read in a long time. It's really, really good. <laughs> well, I, both of us, we have um, a lot of reading that we assign to our students and that we have to keep up with ourselves. Uh, and so... Yeah, this was a big book, and it was kind of like, ooh, start of the semester, I've got a lot of other readings I kind of need to be up on uh, for classes. But it's one of those books where you're kind of like, I could finish this one. <laughs> like, I could finish this short story. Uh, yeah. Uh, where you, you'll, you'll keep yourself up reading. Yeah, I felt like I need to finish this. Yeah. Like, there was, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't leave it at the first two stories. So, thank you, Tommy. It was really, really good. Yes, thank you. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And please, listeners, please leave us a review. I'd like just to have a push to uh, to to double our number of uh, reviews or feedback that we've received on <laughs> iTunes. So if you haven't done that, uh, we know there's enough of you to double this if you would just take a moment uh, while listening and just go hit a review on iTunes. It would definitely help us out. Um, 
Links to the things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And there you can also find a list of all of our previous shows. You can suggest characters or stories for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We are also all on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And that's where most of the discussion takes place. So I recommend that you go and like that page so you can see whenever new posts come up and see what other people people are saying about uh, these discussions. If you like this show and you would like to support us financially, there are a few different ways that you can do that. If you would like to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation for the show with a financial donation, you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Also, don't forget to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or by making your Amazon purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a free 30-day trial of audible.com which is all audiobooks uh, more than you can imagine and you can do that by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist thank you again for listening and we'll be back next week to talk about another great character and another great story so long so long that's it (laughs) Is, I have word. no idea what happened on the script there. Okay. I'm sorry, but that word looks really. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Did you read what I read in that word? <laughs> I can see what you saw there. It's not how that word's spelled. I, 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 it's obviously typo, guys. Oh, <laughs> Okay, focus. Whew. Oh, man. Center ourselves. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs>